1: Hello, welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon from the CUNY Graduate Center, Center for Global Ethics and Politics, one of your hosts for the channel. In this episode, I spoke with Neil Roberts, who's Associate Professor of Africana Studies and an affiliate in Political Science and Religion at Williams College, about his new book, Freedom is Marinage, out from University of Chicago Press in 2015. In this book, Roberts tries to think through the relationship between freedom and slavery in a liminal space or zone in between them in order to articulate a new theory of freedom, taking off from the concept and practice of Marinage, a mode of slave escape coming out of the Caribbean. This is a really fascinating and complex and kind of impressively broad book as it works its way through different historical periods, especially slavery in the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism in diaspora, and the Haitian Revolution a number of thinkers, both historical and contemporary, both from the traditional political theory and political philosophy canon and from outside of it. In the book and in our conversation, Roberts is working with thinkers such as Hannah Arendt or Franz Fanon, but also thinkers coming out of the Haitian Revolution and also with Caribbean thinkers such as Edouard Guisson and American and African-American thinkers such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, and Angela Davis our conversation. We talk about these different thinkers and Roberts' reading of them. We talk about the different complications and theorizing and practices of freedom throughout history and about the way that this kind of marinage or flight can be a post-Western theory and practice of freedom that offers a different, more process-oriented notion or method of freedom. I hope you enjoy the interview, and I definitely urge you to go out and buy and read this excellent book, and stay tuned for more episodes of New Books in Global Ethics and Politics here on the New Books Network. I'm now talking with Neil Roberts, who is an associate professor of Africana Studies with affiliations in political science and religion at Williams College. Neil, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: And thank you very much, John, uh, for having me, and also uh, to your uh, listeners for uh, joining the conversation.
1: Yes. And uh, before we get going, I, you know, I, I probably have enough questions to spend about five hours talking to you. So the listeners <laughs> really need to, I need to emphasize uh, that they should go out and, and read this book because um, it's really brilliant and really complex. And I enjoyed reading it a great deal. And so I hope they enjoy the interview and when they eventually read the book as well. Um, so Neil, I was hoping maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your own intellectual trajectory and how you came to write this particular book.
0: Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, uh, I formally went to graduate school at the University of Chicago to study um, political science and specifically political theory, but uh, my intellectual formation might not necessarily Uh, have led to that path. Um, I actually applied to undergraduate to be a chemistry major. Um, I did not end up um, formally uh, studying chemistry, but I actually see uh, great parallels between uh, what chemists do and also what theorists do. And so I actually studied uh, law and public policy for half of my undergraduate um, time at Brown University. And then Uh, At the same time, I became very interested in what was then the Afro-American studies program that after my graduation became a department at Brown University. And so I did a dual uh, BA degree in um, Afro-American studies and wrote a senior thesis on the thought of Jamaican thinker Sylvia Winter. And so I took a few years to teach high school. I taught um, during the nine months of the year uh, U.S. government and politics to seniors. And freshman world history, and I also coach forensics or speech and debate. Uh, and uh, it was around that time that I got very interested in uh, the idea of uh, the idea of freedom, but it was nothing systematic. Uh, and eventually, when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, um, I ended up applying and uh, and then getting into the University of Chicago primarily to study with the late. Um, feminist philosopher and theorist Iris Marion Young uh, But that really began my uh, Trajectory in terms of studying Political theory um, but as you mentioned At the outset uh, at Williams College uh, Currently I'm the chair of The religion department in which I teach Courses on the philosophy of religion uh, And then also I'm uh, a core Member in Africana Studies uh, And also teach political theory classes And so my intellectual Areas of interest in addition to the The thinking about the concept of freedom, really cut across uh, Caribbean political thought, African-American thought, and um, particularly 19th uh, to 21st century uh, German and French critical theory. Uh, And so uh, even though to some listeners that might seem uh, like different areas that are very divergent, really it's the the, the concepts that I'm interested in, uh, such as freedom, and uh, those are really the anchors to, in some sense, bring together a series of thinkers and movements that um, conventionally don't necessarily get that type of treatment in one uh, in one space.
1: And I think that you certainly accomplished that and the book reflects that, um, kind of multiple perspectives coming together. And if we turn to then maybe think about the book some more specifically, um, you kind of open the book by posing a couple of the central questions. Uh, one is a question about, concepts of freedom that themselves can emerge from the experience of slavery. And then another one of the central questions is about the insights that are provided by examining the relationship between slavery and freedom. So what is it about kind of those two questions that start to motivate what you're doing in the book?
0: Yeah. So in terms of um, the context motivation um, for the book, uh, which connects to my intellectual trajectory, I began graduate school in um, fall of 2001. Um, I ended up, uh, at the time I was living in Washington, D.C., and I ended up moving many of my belongings in the summer of 2001 to um, the south side of Chicago. Uh, I flew back to Washington, D.C., and uh, then ended up sending an appointment to have my first meeting with Professor Iris Young, which was slated to be on um September the twelfth of two thousand and one, uh, which meant that i was um, had a ticket to fly on what we now call nine eleven mm-hmm. uh, the week before our meeting uh, there was a last minute conflict that then required uh, uh, at professor young's request for me to shift our meeting date one day earlier, which meant meeting on September the 11th and me flying on September the 10th. But the short version is my family didn't realize I made that change. And subsequently uh, it turns out that if I had been on um, the uh, original flight slated for September 11th for one of the two planes um, in terms of the terrorist attack that then ended up uh, going into the Pentagon, the flight that I was supposed to be on was very close in that trajectory. Um, And it was really in the wake of that moment of of 9-11 where uh, I uh, we were really wrestling with a series of frustrations that troubled me. One, uh, I was problematized by the discourse that suggested there were certain people who understood what freedom is or what unfreedom is, uh, particularly uh, individuals in the West and the so-called non-Western uh, world didn't understand or appreciate what freedom meant. A lot of this Manichaean discourse. The second, uh, and this gets to your question in terms of the relationship between slavery and freedom, was I was also troubled that uh, for those who may have even tried to wrestle with the relationship between slavery and freedom in not only the modern and late modern period but also in antiquity, uh, Afro modern actors uh, and Afro modern political thought uh, was very much absent in a lot of this uh, in a lot of this discourse. Uh, and uh, and finally, uh, to the question in terms of uh, the relationship between slavery and freedom, I was very interested in. In some sense, trying to rethink what many people take as a a priori, that in some sense, whatever freedom is, uh, the conventional argument is that we're all born free and that whatever slavery is or the condition of slavery and experience of it, it is something after some type of originary freedom. And so I very much wanted to turn that last proposition uh, on its head. uh, And furthermore, I mentioned this uh, in the book, is that uh, John Hope Franklin Uh, who many um, believe was uh, really one of the main figures in terms of providing a framework for the academic study of what we now call uh, African American studies, uh, but also the study of various forms of slavery and slave societies, published a very important um, work uh, 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 from slavery to freedom that on the one hand garnered much attention in the study, particularly of New World slavery, but had an ironic um, result of actually reifying the sense in which freedom and unfreedom were very much posed as static um, as, as static conditions and poles, and so I became very interested in trying to explain uh, what um, uh, what it seems to be where many of us actually are situated is in some sense in the area in the, what Homi Bhabha calls the interstices or Cornel West calls being in the funk, right? So many of us are in the middle struggling either to achieve the free life or falling out of grace from the so-called imagined free state. And it was that problematic that I wanted to wrestle with, again, keeping the, the uh, dialectical discourse between slavery and freedom, but actually in some sense trying to push against this idea that slavery and freedom are, are static conditions and focusing on that middle or liminal area that is really very much the, 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 the basis
1: of the, uh, of the book. Right, and then to do that, then is you know the turn to the concept and practice of marinage. So I was hoping you could uh, maybe give us a sense of the etymological and historical and colonial background um, to help us kind of understand this this idea of what marinage is before we move forward. Thank you for the question. So the
0: term, the actual term, marinage. Uh, which has different spellings, but the, um, the spelling that I use overwhelmingly is M-A-R-R-O-N-A-G-E uh, is a French word that is a noun uh, that uh, the literal translation is flight. Um, the term in terms of uh, the, the etymological origins are referred initially to um, Spanish feral cattle on what was called the island of Hispaniola which are the contemporary polities of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Initially, they referred to Spanish feral cattle that then fled uh, to the hills. Subsequently, the term then referred to uh, indigenous populations on the island of Hispaniola who uh, were laboring on uh, on plantations, who then tried to flee uh, to the hills. And then subsequently, with the importation of African slaves and the beginning of what we call Uh, the transatlantic slave trade to enslaved Africans uh, who then fled to the hills and the marshes uh, and swamps to try and uh, create uh, autonomous communities. And, and, and the actual uh, term marinaj at that moment came into being in the, uh, in the 1530s. Marinaj historically, meaning not only in the period of the 1500s through particularly the 19th century, uh, and also in, con- in contemporary discourse, by particularly historians and anthropologists, usually is described in two forms. The first, what is called petite marinage, and the second, grand marinage. Petite marinage refers to individual acts of flight. So imagine uh, a slave during the period of plantation racial slavery who then fled. Uh, A plantation for an hour or 10 hours, whether that was to attain some type of temporary sustenance for oneself, whether that was potentially to organize uh, a potential uprising across individuals at another plantation, uh, or potentially to consider uh, running away as a fugitive, right? Individual episodic acts of flight. The second form, uh, Grand Marinage referred to Historical these historical autonomous communities, uh, and so these were communities of individuals uh, of runaways or fugitives who decide who believed that in her or his lifetime the actual regime of slavery in their in their view would not be overturned, uh, and so how could one actually create a community uh, with forms of rules and regulations that operated outside of the uh, of uh, of a slaveocracy, and yet. Uh, and so these are, the, if this makes sense, these are the, the, the two conventional uses. Now, here is where things get a bit tricky, and this is really where my book is making an intervention, not only in terms of how we think about freedom, but also pushing against uh, really centuries of historiography on how marinage is, is used. Um, each of these forms, especially the grand Marinage um, form of flight, many people might think is a qualified freedom. And, and what do I mean by that? What we know is that in the historical records, in the Caribbean, in uh, the longest-standing Grand Marinage Maroon community, uh, Palmares in Brazil, and many other spaces, uh, the uh, general pattern uh, of would be colonial powers would try to invade the territory, and then they were repelled. They would try and invade the territory again, the Maroon space, and then they were repelled. And then ultimately... Many of those, most of those maroon communities, brokered actual treaties that said uh, the colonial power would agree not to invade their territory so long as maroons in that Grand Maronage space turned over any new runaways. And the example I I like to point to is uh, is the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica. So if one thinks of the two major revolutions in the Caribbean, uh, the first being the uh, Revolution in Saint Domingue or the Haitian Revolution that ended in 1804, and the Cuban Revolution that uh, its uh, date of immediate ending was uh, 1959. In between those two dates, the one other polity in the Caribbean that was on the cusp of the shift from rebellion to revolution was Jamaica, and the J- Morant Bay Rebellion uh, was actually killed because um, uh, a Maroon turned over one of the two main leaders of the rebellion, Paul Bogle, who was subsequently executed, and the, uh, the rebellion was squashed. So you might say and your listeners may say, well, why are we even talking about Marnage in the first uh, in, in, in the first case? Here's where I want to try and at least convince you and listeners to at least think with me. If we go back to my earlier remarks of, of thinking about how can we look at the relationship between slavery and freedom by actually thinking about that middle liminal area What I'm proposing is the book is to suggest that not just during the period of transatlantic racial slavery, but throughout space and time, whether we're talking about Greek, ancient Greek slavery, ancient Roman slavery, transatlantic racial slavery in the United States, and the Caribbean, if we're talking about contemporary forced sexual workers, forms of trafficking, various forms of enslavement from between past and future, as Hannah Arendt would say, if we actually can think of freedom as the flight this is very important. Freedom as the process of flight from different forms of enslavement, whether that is um, uh, not only uh, temporarily unbounded, uh, but also uh, such a framework allows for us to talk not simply about those individual episodic acts of flight or those isolationist communities, but it actually allows us to talk about revolution. Uh, And so uh, to What's very important for you, uh, for you all to understand in this framework is perhaps one of the most controversial claims of the book where I make an argument that um, we're actually all born enslaved. Uh, and so some may listen and say, well, if we're all born enslaved, that just seems uh, like it doesn't make any sense. And, and I take the converse is if, if one were to tell me, as many people take as a given, that we're all born free, history's on my side. I think there's much more evidence to actually call that into question. So I'm trying to think if we actually take as a premise that we're actually all born enslaved and that freedom is the process of flight, of uh, the flight from that enslavement, then I'm trying to provide a a framework for us to think about different forms of flight, micro-level politics as well as macro-level politics, and areas in between. Uh, And in this respect, and this is why I say in in the introduction to the book, that the idea of freedom as marinage is not anti-Western, right? It's post-Western, right? It's something. That, it's a it's a framework that's meant to actually be able to put different intellectual traditions with their particularities into conversation uh, with with one another. And so, uh, hopefully, that beginning framework lets us begin to get into um, the, the facets of the uh, of the book. But that's 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 a that's a bit of the not only the etymology of the term marinage, but also the ways in which Um, I'm trying to have us expand the framework, and I'm happy to talk more about the stakes of expanding that framework uh,
1: in a little bit. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank thank you. you. Um, Maybe something we can do next is, I mean, one of the things that really struck me in reading the book as a whole from kind of this opening framework you're setting up moving forward is the emphasis on movement, on flight as movement. In contrast to what you often describe as kind of more static or inert, understandings of freedom, you know, in the Western political, theoretical, political, philosophical tradition. Um, Why is movement so important for thinking about the relationship between freedom and slavery or for thinking about this kind of liminal space that you're really interested in trying to get at?
0: Thank you for for that. Uh, So one of the claims I make at the outset of the the book uh, is that uh, there are different dimensions to flight. Uh, that involve a, a couple of those dimensions um, you already mentioned. Uh, one is the question is, is is distance. The second is movement, the pillar that you just mentioned. Uh, but also, uh, thirdly, the notion of property in, in in its multiple dimensions, and also the issue of purpose. Uh, I argue in Freedom as marinage that the Western tradition of political thought and philosophy, uh, in terms of thinking about freedom, can be thought of in terms of two streams the first we can call negative and the second positive the negative tradition uh, is encapsulated in different notions such as uh the idea of freedom as non-interference going all the way back to thomas hobbes's leviathan in 1651 through uh, sir isaiah berlin's mid-20th century uh two concepts of liberty uh two also uh not only Republican, but neo-Republican thinkings on freedom that talk about freedom as forms of non-domination. So both the idea of freedom as non-interference and non-domination in their different articulations talks about uh, ways that an agent cannot be coerced, but it doesn't tell us what type of world we want to live in. So the negative tradition on the one hand. The positive tradition in Western political thought can be understood in different modalities, such as the idea of self-mastery or the idea of participation that Hannah Arendt uh, advocated for in her various works, to the uh, ideas of plurality or uh, Rousseau's notion of the general will. These tell us facets of what type of constitutional order uh, individuals and collectives want to live in. They tell us about how we may be active in the political life, but they don't tell us what type of world we want to move away from. And so, to your question of well, why is not just marinage, but why is the idea of movement right? uh, and the idea of flight important? Is that these two poles, these new, these negative traditions uh, and positive traditions, take as a given not only that whatever freedom and unfreedom are that they are static, but they also take as a given that they don't have much relation to one another. And so, what I'm trying to orient readers with with the idea of marinage, of which movement distance, property, and purpose are integral to this understanding is to suggest that there is a way to actually connect these two, uh, these two frameworks. Um, one thinker who um, I believe has attempted uh, at one point in, uh, in, in his career to try and unite these two poles uh, is Orlando Patterson, a Jamaican uh, kind of famed Jamaican thinker who for several years has taught at Harvard University. And Patterson's early work um, that many readers in North America aren't familiar with. For those uh, in the Caribbean, many people know Orlando Patterson as a novelist, right? Um, Author of *The Children of Sisyphus*, which was one of the first novels on the Rastafari movement. Um, But also, his early work was on the sociology of slavery in Jamaica. Many North American readers know Patterson uh, most famously in 1982 with uh, a book called *Slavery and Social Death*, uh, and then subsequently uh, in a book called *Freedom*. Volume One: Freedom, Freedom in the Making of Western Culture, and so Patterson did try an attempt in his body of work to in, in, in implicitly unify those poles. But there is a fundamental difference between the idea of Marinage and particularly Patterson's idea of social death. Um, the idea of slavery as social death is uh, is the idea that slaves throughout time are in essence, and this is using my language, not Patterson, right, living zombies. Right, that slaves are non-agentic beings, and if slaves attain the free life or are manumitted, it is by the agency of the coercive force that has placed slaves in a particular condition or institution. Um, Freedom as Marinage, my book, is actually fundamentally arguing against this, and in many regards, it it is in the spirit of Sylvia Winter and Franz Fanon and C.L.R. James, uh, by making an assertion that, uh, that fundamentally, in my view, all humans throughout space and time have the intrinsic capacity for agency for action, that capacity might be constrained but the challenges. how does one who is born into slavery who has a capacity for action that is contra the idea of social death, how does that actually materialize and this question of, of flight and the framework it's very much process oriented because many people will ask, well where is the endpoint when does in other words, if one imagines the free life, is that it right? um and uh, what i'm proposing is we all have different social and political imaginaries of what the pre-life is and we may very much achieve that uh that moment or that state but once we achieve it social and political orders realign right and and so this is it's a it's a it's a constant process and so to 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 really bring your point full circle is i really want to just emphasize that it's not that there we can't think in terms of negative and positive notions of uh, of freedom, but the question is: How do they relate to one another? How can we actually um, support? How can we actually take seriously the idea that the enslaved, or what Fanon called le damne, right? the right right—the damned or the condemned—are in fact nonetheless uh, can have the capacity to imagine otherwise? And my last point in this is that there is very much a phenomenological dimension to this work. That is the question of lived experience, and our experience is very much. Um, plays a part in how I w- I've been trying to wrestle with this question. So the book actually takes a non-linear temporality. So after the introduction uh, in the first chapter, The Disavow of Slave Agency, the book wrestles with not only the thought of Hannah Arendt uh, and also figures such as Philip Pettit and W. E. B. Du Bois, but beyond the figures, it's the, the chap- that chapter is looking at the ways in which, um, what does it mean, uh, what are the stakes of disavowing slavery uh, slavery's relation to, uh, to freedom. And then even those who might not disavow that relation, those who disavow, uh, the actual capacity for, uh, for slaves for political action. And by disavowal, uh, I mean the conscious, uh, acknowledgement and rejection of a phenomenon by the belief that those who do so realize that it
1: might destabilize their own, uh, their own frameworks. And then, yeah. Right now, actually, I might want to jump in there real quick. So in that first chapter, yeah. You know, I think one of the progenerative things you're doing is not only talking about kind of, you know, the structure of this disavowal, right, how it happens, and you illustrate it with especially reference to Arendt and to Pettit, but also you talk about the way that this disavowal produces what you call traumatic effects. Right. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of illustrate what that means for us with reference to Arendt and or with reference to Pettit. Sure. Um, so uh,
0: uh, for, for listeners who haven't read the big bicar- or don't have access now, um, I, I really begin that first chapter with, with trying to articulate this notion of disavowal, which is very important for not just the chapter, but for um, for the, the book itself. So let me try and illustrate this briefly, and then let me come back to uh, tying it to those thinkers. Um, there are many who, particularly in the literature on the Haitian Revolution or the Revolution Saint-Domingue, uh, who in the wake of uh, kind of a famous... Haitian scholar, a late scholar, Michel Rolfe Trio, who wrote a book called Silencing the Past, who have argued that the Haitian Revolution, particularly in historiography and in what some scholars call the age of revolution, really the period of the 18th century, early 19th century, um, that there is many discourses to this day on the American Revolution uh, beginning in 1776 and the French Revolution beginning in 1789, uh, but that there has been a silencing of the Haitian Revolution that began... Uh, in uh, 1791 and that by actually looking at the actors uh, and the revolution as a whole one can learn more about the age of revolution and attendant concepts and ideas emerging out of it um, I think attention to the Haitian revolution as I do even in this book give two chapters two, is integrally important um, but the weakness of the idea of silencing silence a silence takes as a given that there's no record right you follow that there's no record or account of actions or events that happened, the revolution in Saint Domingue. We have and had records at the time. We have records not only by Haitian revolutionaries, but uh, by observers, planters, uh, individuals who then um, also were observing uh, in newspapers around the world, following this particular event. So silence—the idea of silence actually doesn't particularly work. And so one of the things I take by using the idea of disavow the both con- the, the conscious. Uh, acknowledgement and rejection of an event uh, is to not only signal the ways in which there are different phenomena that did occur in historical records that one is aware of, uh, but the rejection of it has implications that lead to the, uh, that lead that that can lead to the, um, that can lead to the, uh, to the traumatic. And so in terms of thinking through one of the examples, uh, one of the figures I talked about, as you mentioned is, is Hannah Arendt. who had, was a, was a German emigre, uh, philosopher who, uh, uh, was this, uh, who, uh, authored several important works pre- both before but also, uh, when Arendt came to the United States. Uh, and in the book, um, the works that I, uh, one work in particular that I spend, uh, a good deal of time talking about, uh, is a 1963 work, uh, on, uh, on revolution, which was a study of the American, uh, and French Revolutions, but I also talk about some of Arendt's other works, uh, such as *The Human Condition* uh, and certain lectures uh, that some published, some unpublished. Uh, but one of the striking facets of Arendt's work uh, is that uh, is this question of of slavery. And so Arendt is a, is a good example of an individual who does not silence slavery in on revolution and also various other works by uh, by Hannah Arendt, who before that moment, especially in works such as The Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, in that second famous part of The Origins of Totalitarianism in the early 1950s, where Arendt was trying to think of how does actually race and slavery, how can we actually think about race and slavery in relation to the phenomenon of concentration camps and right, the final solution with Jews. Uh, and the Holocaust was very attentive to uh, was very attentive to notions of enslavement, but when it came to transatlantic racial slavery, Arendt uh, is 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 really a case in point with regards to this issue of traumatic effects. Is that Arendt poses back to the 1963 work on revolution poses the French Revolution on the one hand as uh, as an understandable attempt with the the critique in France of the uh, uh, of the Idea of the divine right of kings and kingship to the third estate and the San rising up against, uh, against the monarchy. But for our, Arendt, in Arendt's view, there was, uh, this was a, a revolution shrouded in violence that led to the reign of terror. And in Arendt's view, uh, connecting the human condition to on, uh, on revolution, the potential for the social realm to obliterate, right, the realm of the public realm of the political. So for Arendt, in other words, French Revolution, bad. It, <laughs> This, the American Revolution in, on Revolution ends up being uh, uh, presented with Aren as the found, what she calls a constitution of freedom. This was a revolution that to, was to be admired. This was a revolution that took lasting constitutional principles and participation seriously. And for Aren, this was a revolution that was without violence. Now, there are two big problems with that framework. The first uh, is that the American Revolution in the aftermath uh, was without violence. But the second, most importantly, which aren't actually writes about, but only uh, to a degree, is that this was a republic, uh, as Roger Smith and others have talked about in Civic Ideals, of a republic that was founded on right, the enslavement of New World uh, Africans, and slavery was integral right to the founding of uh, up to the United States. So to that question of traumatic effects, why, what is the trauma? There's not only the epistemological trauma of how we study, if this makes sense, how we study theory, how we actually present history, but there's also the actual effects of how we even think about the representations of the period of not only the American Revolution but also uh, the period in that wake, which is uh, which is the Civil War. And so one of the one of the thinkers who I talk about uh, in the book, W. E. B. Du Bois, in his magisterial 1935 book, Black Reconstruction in America, is Du Bois uh, is very much concerned with when at the moment when Du Bois is writing, this historiography on Reconstruction is rise, the rise and fall of Reconstruction at the end of the Civil War. This, speaking of disavowal, right, not just silencing, but the disavowal of the role that slaves made in the consti- not only the building of the Republic, but also the ways in which the sl- slaves and also the fugitive slave in particular had uh, an integral role. Uh, in uh, in not only uh, the Civil War itself, but also the refashioning, the attempt to refashion uh, American uh, American democracy, and so the traumatic effects that I'm concerned about, not only with uh, the afterlife of scholarship in the wake of Hannah Arendt, but also figures such as Philip Pennett and civic um, the the civic republican, the so called civic republican turn uh, in political theory and philosophy is it is a term uh, these are. These are different movements that have introduced very interesting concepts, but uh, either the institution of slavery was disavowed in Arnes' case, or in Pettit's case, and also civic republicans who very much, to be clear, take slavery, especially in the Roman world uh, and in the Neo-Roman world, uh, to be very central to what liberty means. But 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 really do not talk at all about what does it mean for slaves themselves, or what I call and Slaves themselves. To be uh, agents of uh, agents of uh, of change, uh, and and my argument in terms of traumatic effects is that we see the afterlife and we see the effects of the failure to take uh, these seriously. Not within this is not an idea to be within the halls of academia. I see these effects as something that are very much at the fabric of our current moment, from Black Lives Matters to the social unrest in South Africa uh, to many uh, to many um, struggles that we are facing in uh, in this late modern. Uh, this late modern modern present. So uh, and I could give different examples, but really the, the point I want to make is is the last big point I want to make is that that my argument is not to then simply say, well, are is unuseful. Philip Pettit and civic Republicans are unuseful. In fact, central to the book is very much a reconstruction of certain principles of uh, uh, especially in Arendt's case. Um, of this idea of this distinction that Arendt makes, which I think is very useful between liberation, right, the release from one's chains, and the constitution of, uh, of, of, uh, of lasting, the constitution of freedom or founding constitutional principles and the acts that would lead to the lasting of a, of, of a polity. In Arendt's case, she believes that liberation and the foundation of freedom are two separate dynamics. Uh, what I try and do is actually bring those, uh, different ideas together. And it, and this is why uh, the chapter on Frederick Douglass, mediated by Hannah Arendt and Samuel Teller College, is important because I really see Douglass um, as someone who, again, speaking of the uh, the, the nonlinearity of this book, uh, that Frederick Douglass before Arendt uh, in the nineteenth century was actually very much um, getting at was trying to articulate um, a framework to bring in liberation dynamics of liberation and the foundation of freedom together, and he also gives a framework as someone who himself was. Uh, was not only born enslaved, but also experienced uh, very harsh realities of chattel slavery and the struggle to extricate himself from it. Uh, about this, uh, about uh, about that, the importance of that liminal area as giving, as informing uh, the abilities not only collectives um, to usher in the free life, but also individuals ourselves. And one point I realized that I did not make, that I am not mentioned between the distinction between maranaje and the concept of slavery as social death the concept of slavery and social death fundamentally rejects the psychology of the slave as having any impact in the decision-making um, actions of, uh, of the domne And I'm making an argument that with, that with Maranage is very much the psychological, not only the physical, but the cognitive, the psychological, the metaphysical are all very much intertwined in the actions that Sheer he does uh, in this, in this world. And so that's, that's going back to your issue of trauma. That's why, uh, purely the physical can't actually, in my view, explicate uh, a theory of freedom, and that's why this book doesn't say it's a theory of political freedom. It is very much concerned with this book is concerned with the political, but it very much is also taking the different valences of what freedom means: right, the physical, the uh, the psychological, the metaphysical together. Uh, and and really, the Douglas chapter just begins. It's very important at anchor, um, but it's really the beginning of of what I hope. and and I try and do in the rest of the book with not only Douglas, but the study of the Haitian revolution and Edward Glissant. And then ultimately at the end with the Rastafarian movement uh, to say that these aren't the only examples that we can use, but these are ways that this makes sense to try and get at not only the importance of taking as a framework that we're all born enslaved. Secondly, um, taking, uh, uh, taking heed that this, the notion of disavowing slavery and slave agency uh, has traumatic effects. And then to say, well, if that's actually true, then well, Roberts, show us. And so, in essence, that's what I try and do for a good part of the rest of the book is to demonstrate that if I at least have people's attention, whether or not they even agree, agree with me at that point, to then actually really do the hard work of uh, uh, of actually uh, demonstrating um, the stakes of uh, of all of what I've just said.
1: Great. Right. So let's then maybe kind of, I'd like to ask you to do that. in the so chapters three and four that turn to the Haitian Revolution and you turn to kind of, different forms, concepts, practices yeah. of marinage. Um so you you know, you gave us the distinction earlier between uh petit and grand marinage. Right. And so another kind of distinction that you're making and working through um in these two chapters on the Haitian Revolution is between sovereign and then sociogenic marinage. So maybe we can kind of take each of those in turn um in the way you do in the book. So I mean what's then is kind of the, f- the 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 kind of freedom and the kind of flight that are particular to sovereign marinage in the Haitian Revolution?
0: Great. So I should just say at the outset to put my cards on the table. I'm very much concerned with revolutionary politics. I don't uh assume that uh everyone else is, but but I am. And so one of the important facets of the book that I wanted to capture uh is really overturning, among other things, not just um the the what I believe is the limiting framework of thinking about flight purely in the petite marnage grand marnage dichotomy, uh, but what has been called in some circles fight versus flight, meaning that flight is simply running away right running away from a social and political order by an individual or collective fighting or revolution means right the overturning of the entire order and so with introducing these two notions as you mentioned, what I call sovereign Marnage and the second which we'll talk about momentarily, uh, sociogenic marinage, was an attempt to try and think about, well, what does macro, how can flight be captured in macro-level politics and particularly in the most uh, salient example of macro-level politics being uh, revolution? Um, so what are these two notions? Let's begin with sovereign marinage. Sovereign marinage is, in, in my view, the idea of a mass collectivity of people Believing that she or he's gateway or their ability to achieve the free life must be mediated by some sovereign entity. Call that sovereign entity a deity, a god or gods. Call that sovereign entity a, for instance, political leader. That there is some type of sovereign figure through which a mass then, in other words, as if, you know, speaking of, one of the few times you'll hear me talk about trickle-down economics, the, the metaphor of trickle-down, right? As if through some type of sovereign entity, trick, freedom then would trickle down, does it make sense, to a mass, right? And how I try and um, demonstrate this notion of sovereign manage is through um, looking at the Haitian Revolution. And the first thing that I begin with in the first of the two chapters on Haitian Revolution without giving, a, giving it away for the readers is to, I think, fairly uncontroversially suggest that for those who eat art even, you know, might be even minimally familiar with the Haitian Revolution, if one says Haitian Revolution and freedom, there is one name that just comes up, Toussaint Louverture. I mean, it's just, and that's not just in the 21st century, that is even in the moment in which Toussaint was um, was alive. And so I, I really should say, and so in some sense, the book might kind of, um, you know, there, there, may be people in some of the Haitian revolutionary scholarship that, that might not like the representation. But nonetheless, what I say is Toussaint was an amazing, um, stra- uh, strategist, an important figure. Uh, but what I, I want to convey is that Toussaint's vision of the free life was, was an example of what I'm calling sovereign marinage, but was not the entire conception of freedom that was at work in the Haitian revolution. And so, what I try and uh, what I try and do is to not only articulate the um, uh, the context of the revolution in Saint Domingue that began uh, in uh, in 1791 in a Voodoo ceremony, which is very important to understand. It began in the hills, right? Uh, and so, I uh, not only talk about the ceremony, but then uh, begin to talk about what was uh, what was slave society like in revolutionary Saint Domingue. What does it mean that? the Haitian revolution was the only known revolution that we know that slaves themselves successfully uh, instituted a new society. But also what does it mean when we look at certain, not only um, what we, what we know of Toussaint, but also I try and use what we know in terms of documents of Toussaint's own words and what he wrote. um, uh, And also Toussaint's uh, 1801 constitution, um, and so, one of the things I do is not only talk about the great benefits of of, of what Toussaint was advocating in terms of trying to, uh, in, in terms of being a revolutionary, rather, uh, but also I call Toussaint a cosmopolitan nationalist. Ultimately, Toussaint's vision of a post-revolutionary Haiti was one in which um, that post-revolutionary um, that post-revolutionary polity would still have cosmopolitan ties to the to Haiti's colonial power, France. Uh, in fact, in his constitution. Uh, Toussaint says uh, uh, to be free is to be free in French, uh, or to be Haitian right, is uh, uh, to be free in French. Uh, and so I, 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 I complicate the implications of that. And perhaps it's not surprising that Toussaint, in his attempt to want to have a cosmopolitan vision while imagining local self-determination in the imagined post-revolutionary republic, uh, was uh, betrayed by um, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and captured and then taken to France and uh, and died in the Jura Mountains, uh, and so one of the things I do at that point is to say, well, if Toussaint's vision, which was a magisterial vision, and 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 many uh, thinkers have talked about the Atlant- the, rev- the reverberations of Toussaint's, um actions in the Atlantic world, which are all that's very important and and really and we should all look at that. But I'm I actually am much more interested not just in Toussaint, but actually what did what did masses of people advocate for. For instance, one of the things I talk about in the book are also what I call proto-constituent assemblies. There were uh, assemblies uh, of uh, of what were uh, what were at one point uh, in the revolution, there was a period in which France uh, made an abolition decree. So the, the hard thing to parse with the Haitian revolution is there was a revolution in which there were enslaved bodies and for a very brief period of time, there were uh, individuals who were technically freed for a period and then re-enslaved on the order of Napoleon. And in that very short period, they're uh, formerly enslaved black, uh, black slaves who then argued for uh, equal pay for equal work. They met in assemblies, what in the 20th century, some would, some people would call the council system, right? There were, there are there a lot of different political formations that individuals, both the enslaved. And then in this point, the temporarily manumitted uh, uh, who had different forms of governance, Imagine forms of governance, different forms of activity that, if you follow, weren't simply the dictate of Toussaint or Dessalines or Christophe or any other uh, major revolutionary figure whom have very much been identified closely with the Haitian Revolution, but also what are the people themselves saying? And also going back to Maroons, not only looking at masses, but also the Maroon communities within um, Saint-Domingue during the time in which the revolutionary was revolution was occurring. Uh, and then I also talk about the kind of the Haiti's first post-revolutionary uh, constitution in addition to some other facets of, uh, of flight. And so uh, there's a lot in between that I didn't get to spell out. But what I, I'm doing in those two chapters is trying to not only invite all of us to think about this third major revolution uh, that is, was going on during the age of revolution, but also to think not only with but beyond the figure of Toussaint um, Louverture that then allows us to get at what i call socio uh, sociogenic marinage, um, which is the idea of the structural and the political and social reordering of a uh, reordering of a uh, of a society uh, and so i look at this through um Notions such as naming. So I talked about just what do we mean when we name, right? Just not particularly to same thing but just uh, across time. What do we mean by the act of naming? What, what I call veve architectonics. You know, what, is, what types of blueprints do individuals and masses imagine the free life to be? What is the state of society? How, what is the relationship between um, the social and political orders? And then last but not least, constitutionalism. So what are the documents? What are the, what are the lasting frameworks that a people... Uh, are trying to uh, put in place uh, or replace in order to have transform a society and imagine long lasting. Now there is a caveat here. Um, we we already discussed at the outset that this is a framework that doesn't believe or d- doesn't take as uh, a, a, as a, a, as part of its um, framework that there is um, a fixed beginning and a fixed. And so one may say, if you achieve, you know, in terms of sociogenic marinage, if a mass, an individual in the mass achieves the so-called free life that one had a blueprint for, is that it? Right. Um, And my retort is, let's even just look at the case of America. If I were to say a series of dates, 1865, the end of Reconstruction, the 1920s, the 1930s, 1945. 1963, the election of Barack Obama, 2008, and other lists, already probably in your head, in the head of the uh, listeners, you're already probably imagining these different junctures between the Civil War till after the election of the first African-American president that certainly reflect what W.E.B. Du Bois called in the Souls of Black Folk, uh, the, the, the meaning of progress. Right? But once in each of those moments, there were different imagined senses of what the society could and should be. And there are certain moments in which uh, they, there was achievement, such as the end of the Civil War, if one is, their view is from the perspective of the North, I imagine, versus the Confederacy. Um, and yet the polity then restructured and there were different challenges. With the rise of Reconstruction, uh, there were, the fr- uh, as the Freedmen's Bureau was put into place in the Civil War Amendments, there were attempts to, re- uh, to integrate blacks into the body politic. And then there was the fall of Reconstruction and the, and the emergence of what we call Jim Crow. And then why I want to come back to black Li- the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the current conjuncture, where it is not a contradiction to acknowledge different forms of progress that were imagined at a particular period of time and then look at our current moment and see the, dehuman- the ongoing dehumanization of black and brown life. The uh, the the ways in which there is, if one wants to look at the relationship between citizen, between state, uh, civil society, uh, and the private sphere, how there are tensions still to this day between these different areas, and the different rhetoric and also blueprints of what individuals and masses believe freedom should be or freedom needs to materialize. Um, that these are ongoing struggles, and this is why I believe that uh, that fundamental to that notion of struggle that, that, that struggle is central to freedom that, that, that flight really on the, the perpetual n- nature of flight can account for progress but it doesn't mean that 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 we, uh, that we fix uh, we stay at an end. And something that I do want to mention which is that of the thinkers in um, Western political thought uh, and also in uh, European political thought in the modern period who has been most influential uh, in my work is, um, uh, is Jean- Jacques Rousseau. And so, in many regards, I think Rousseau, within the social contract tradition, who could be considered an anti-contractarian contractarian, very much was, uh, during his time, trying to actually think more than others about not only the relationship between slavery and freedom, but also this the, 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 the liminal spaces between those uh, different moments. And Rousseau also had an insight that is compatible with the idea of Maronais, is that even if one were to achieve the free life, one can then fall out of grace from that, right? So we see that from not only the discourse on political economy uh, and also the discourse on inequality through the social contract and Emile, and then his late works and also his own period as a fugitive, um, that you see Rousseau trying to articulate this this slipperiness. Uh, our, the biggest distinction between Rousseau and myself is that Rousseau takes uh, as a belief that we're all born, uh, born free, and so um, there is that kind of Small, big quabble. <laughs> yes. Um but I see these as compatible, and I also see the limitations of um, of different frameworks as very much uh, as very much healthy for us to actually really wrestle with. So even going back to Douglas, this is not about romanticizing Douglas or romanticizing or vilifying Arnt or Pettit or the Haitian Revolution for that matter, right? This is about how can all of us who are still, myself included, really trying to Wrestle with perhaps one of the biggest age-old questions: What does it mean to be free? Um, That I believe that we actually learn from not only those figures and movements who we um, find astounding, superb, exemplary, to the problematic, or also to people who we in movements we might have held in high regard, and then when we dig deeper, we realize that there's more layers of complexity than we might initially have uh have thought and so really what i'm hoping is not for readers to simply say they read the book and say roberts is right thank you very much this is to say i even welcome the pushback, but as so long as i can at least spark in all of you an attempt for us to try and not only pluralize the um the interlocutors who we engage with to think about the question of freedom but also take into account um uh, a framework that is very much one that i've been um doing work beyond the freedom is marinaj book particularly with my colleague jane anna gordon which is uh, a notion coming out of Caribbean political thought called creolization Uh, and creolization is not simply um the notion of uh mestizaje or hybridity uh, or simply mixture right creolization is the idea of not simply putting element A and B together and getting a result, but it, it's about how do two or more elements and entities that come into relate contact with one another, not only what immediately comes out of that interaction, but what is the, what are the dynamic forces and novel and new uh, modes of being and doing that emerge out of that um, out of that moment that are constantly transforming, and so the idea of creolizing political thought as a, as a, as a gerund, right? As an active form, not just inert noun, but creolizing, right? The process of creolizing the political that isn't completely captured in the movement of what has been known recently as comparative political theory, right? Where someone says, well, how, how can we put Plato, for instance, in conversation with um, Mao Zedong, for instance, that's not creolization. That's simply two, right? Figures. Who in different traditions, that's not what creolization is. Creolization is how do we study those figures and movements not only together, but the dynamic um, results out of that um, out of that process. And that process of creolization also decenters or what Dipesh Chakrabarty calls when he talks about, talks about decentralizing Europe or provincializing Europe. It also provincializes uh, any form of center. Right. Uh, what certain scholars and activists call right the decolonization of knowledge. Right. That there is there is no center. Crucialization is not about creating a new normal, right? It's not about a a revisionist normalization. It's about how do different um, entities in what Enrique Dussel um, felicitously calls the pluriverse, not the universe, right? The pluriverse in a world in which there are multiple attempts at answering these important questions. What comes out of this conversation? And you know what? We can't do it all. We can't put everything in conversation with um, with everything, but we can, I think, uh, begin to really open up our epistemological blinders, right? The blinders of knowledge uh, to really try and get at uh, much more comprehensive understanding of what it means to be free and why slavery and slave agency is so critically important to that narrative. Right?
1: Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, so Maybe we can start to close. One of my favorite quotes, one of many favorite uh, passages from this book is, and you're talking about sociogenic marinage. Um This is on page 116. And you talk about it as a trans historical and macro political conception of flight that is part of what it means to be human. Yeah. And so maybe in order to get, to give the listener kind of a taste of what you're doing with uh, Glissant in chapter five or with uh, Rastafari in the afterward, could you maybe talk us through kind of what what the trans historical and macro political flight as what it means to be human, how that maybe plays out in Glissant or how it plays out in Rastafari? Absolutely. So
0: um uh, one of the facets of the book when it was in an early man- well, not early, but maybe um at a particular manuscript stage where really in terms of time, um I, I felt that I wasn't engaging with different figures and movements and debates in the present enough. And uh, in addition to that, um, it occurred to me that um, there's really a single figure in my view, who in the modern and late modern period devoted the most attention explicitly, not implicitly, explicitly to the idea of marinage in these four different valences, even though um, this person didn't use sovereign and sociogenic marinage in uh, in his language, uh, his work spells this out. And that is Edward Glissant, who was a uh, a contemporary of Franz Fanon in Martinique. Uh, he was, like Fanon, a student of the great poet, Um, philosopher Aimé Césaire Uh, and Glissant was an individual who uh, wrote several novels and plays and also theoretical nonfiction treatises um, that in my view actually um, talk about the implications of marinage between past and future and so to talk the reader through a little bit of what uh, they're going to read in the latter part of the book. I do a, a couple of things with regards to Glissant. Uh, the first is that I do a reading of uh, of a novel of Glissant published in the 1960s in French um, that translates as the fourth century. And so without saying too too much, um, the, uh, the novel is actually set in uh, in the Caribbean in the uh, in the initially in the 1780s. Uh and there are two main characters who, in essence, are on a slaver on a ship, and they land in Martinique. And then, one, uh, they initially have a confrontation on the slave ship. And then, after this tense confrontation, uh, these two right Africans who had been taken forcibly from their homeland one decides to literally run off and just they, they've never been to uh, this island called Martinique and they run off and eventually become a maroon in the Grand Marinage tradition. Another ends up joining the so-called slavocracy and becoming a slave in, uh, in the regime of plantation slavery. And they begin, uh, Glissant's novel then says that they begin these two lineages, if this makes any sense. And so the book, the, the novel then looks and traces what did, it, what did it mean for one of the ancestors to stay on the plantation and not flee, and the other to become a maroon. and then uh, And then it goes more into the period up to the mid-20th century, uh, and without giving away the novel and also Glissant's uh, conclusions, it very much raises the question of not only the strengths and weaknesses of a form of grand marinage compared to uh, being within uh, a plantation slavery regime, but it also suggests um, at what point is there a point in which someone physically can't necessarily extricate themselves from uh, the larger polity? What is the What are the effects of that? And that's when the, 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 chapter then turns to Glissant's, um, uh, fiction, particularly his 1981 work, uh, uh, Discourse Antire, uh, which has been translated in a radically truncated and, in my argument, insufficient way as Caribbean discourse in English, which is roughly about one fifth of the size of the original French book. So I work with the, the French text. Uh, and this is Glissant beginning to look at questions of not only, Cr- uh, uh, Caribbean federation and also different Forms of of, of of macro political flight, uh, but the, the the chapter then not only looks at um, Glissant's later um, later works, um, but also it ends discussing uh, discussing um, a, a manifesto that Glissant co wrote uh, co-wrote soon before he passed uh, passed away, and um, it actually deals with the question of immigration. What I, I I coined the term the refugee immigrant, and so it's actually Glissant's manifesto during the uh, presidency of Nicolas Sarkozy in France. Uh, attempt to create a ministry of naturalization and immigration uh, to oversee, in some sense, oversee in broader terms uh, uh, questions of what are the fate of immigrants to mainland France. Uh, and so through those and some other unnamed texts that I engage with, I try and look at Glissant as someone thinking about in the 20th and 21st century. Well, why does marinage? Uh, why does marinage? matter, it should matter to us because this is not something that is about the 1500s and the 1700s and the mid 20th century, but this, the idea of flight is with us, right, even in the 20, uh, in the 21st, uh, and uh, and so, and so on the one hand, that's the glissant, uh, and then the afterward is very much um, a prologue, a short, not very long, but a prologue made it to um, the next book I'm Uh, I'm finishing right now. Um, and so the afterword is on the Rastafari movement. And so I look at the Rastafari as a, uh, as a, as a, as a faith and a movement that avowedly uh, considers himself a maroon movement. Uh, And what does it mean to look at this, at the political theology of this movement as also encapsulating, um, the different modalities of flight, but also problematizing the movement because the movement itself is going through a series of transformation so one of the one of the the concepts i didn't talk about yet is the idea of diaspora which i tried to flag is was you know diaspora and diaspora studies was very uh, important and has been important in, in global thinking and also political actors the idea of individuals being from some homeland homeland and then being dispersed across uh, across the world um or perhaps you know the relation between someone and diaspora back to that uh to that uh to that homeland but a lot of times Discourse on diasporic work is overwhelmingly unidirectional, right? A to B or B to A, right? One way, right? Or two way along that line. And many times with the Rastafari movement, one of the principles for decades of the Rastafari was the idea of repatriation. If individuals, let's say, in um, colonial and post-colonial Jamaica among Rastafari, the different mansions or branches are considered kind of dispersed Africans, forcibly uh, uh, brought to the so-called new world uh, and are... um, extricated from their homeland which is ethiopia qua africa then for decades there has been the argument that um that rastafari in the americas should then repatriate back to ethiopia or another part of africa but even the movement itself has undergone transformations where there are some for instance in cuba and i talk about this briefly the cuban rastafari for instance have made a very compelling argument that the idea of re- the repatriation of valence is no longer their prime con- primary concern cuban rastafari believe that It is through becoming a Rasta that the ideals of the the Cuban Revolution of 1959 that was a revolution not regarding class, that many people think. It was a revolution for racial equality. That the ideals through Rastafari, the ideals of the Cuban Revolution in 2015, can be revitalized through Rasta. Uh, And and so it ends by suggesting that through the strengths and challenges of Rastafari, in the wake of the late modern points raised by Guisan and others, um that uh that that, that that this is what I pose to us is not a conclusion but is an invitation to say that these this is part and parcel of uh the continued struggle to uh, to be uh to be free, the insights of Afro modern actors, the ways in which um the so-called Manichaean Western, non-Western binary doesn't work when we think of the ways in which movements and figures can actually come together. And then also, quite frankly within the fields of philosophy and political theory and also philosophy, uh, you know, religious studies um, and black studies, not um, solely limited to those, how can we actually really push all of those fields to um, to, to really, to, to broaden, right? To think about, to reevaluate their um, their conception of self and their, as, as Glissant would say, relation or relation, right? The relation between... These different entities, um, and that's you know I, that that I would say there's more than that, but that's I think that's enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but that's 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 where it's going. And then just to kind of end on the point, since I believe you you, you were asking me before we went on the air about um, current work that I'm doing um, is that the you know I'm 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 working on a book now, um, hoping to finish my next academic uh, by the end of um, uh, 2016. Uh, called Dread Politics Agency on Rastafari Political Theology, and so I'm very interested in. Uh, I've been interested particularly in uh, continuing not only the question of what is freedom mean, but also agency, which is related to freedom. The Question of action is related to it, but not, not the same as, not isomorphic with. And so I'm very. I've been very interested in how uh, uh, how different individuals and groups. Who have no desire to institute a theocracy right? into these groups in so-called secular modern, late modern states nonetheless want not simply recognition but want uh, and are advocating for the exercise of principles connected to their belief system political theology in a lot of philosophical circles still gets collapsed into a single figure Carl, the late German jurist Carl Schmidt. And its um, uh, permutations in the contemporary moment with thinkers such as Giorgio Agamben uh, and some others. And not only do I think that this is a very narrow, not only masculinist um, uh, genealogy of what political theology means, but it also, in terms of intellectual traditions, is very narrow. And so uh, the book is actually looking at the Rastafari movement. And so it starts um, in uh, the uh, 19th century uh, colonial Jamaica uh, and then it goes into then the different branches of the the Rastafari uh, movement, and then subsequently how Rastafari um, regionally and internationally has directly and indirectly influence um, influenced politics and so I see the connection again with the extension of the idea of Maranaj, but much more focused in, in, in that work on um, in progress on uh, on how we think about political agency and what is the relationship between political theology and Um, and agency, and uh, and also the Creolizing Rousseau book that I had completed with Jane Anna Gordon um, in 2015 was a work uh, as part of really a movement emerging out of the Caribbean Philosophical Association, or the CPA, whose motto is shifting the geography of reason. How can we actually think about creolizing political thought uh, and actually looking at, in this case, the figure of Rousseau, as I mentioned earlier, someone who's been integral to my own work and also to Jane Gordon's work, uh, but also very central figure in modern political thought, thinking about slavery and freedom. What can we learn, but also push Rousseau, and not only what Rousseau said, but Rousseau, what Rousseau did not say, to think about different questions of uh, of the political. And so uh, the Creolizing Rousseau book is the first in a, in a series that um, launched a series that we co-edit with Roman and Littlefield uh, International. And so there's um, other books that have come out. Theorizing Glissant uh, came out. Um, a couple a couple months ago, and, and and there's a few other books creolizing Hegel and one on Arnt, and, and also a famous um, living Caribbean thinker, Paget Henry. The book should be out in April, which is looking at different facets of how the canon of political thought can be itself um, creolized. So there's some works I'm doing on my own, and others. Honestly, there's people who not only have more time and acumen in certain areas to to spell this out, but it really is part of this Caribbean Philosophical Association mission. To try and um, really, really, as 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 we believe, shifting the geography of reason, uh, and 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 hoping that can be a reservoir for uh, for those to not just think in our time. We have to think just like questions regarding the environment. Uh, do you want to think? Does one want to think in one's epoch or time? Or does one want to think about ideas and actions that are going to affect the world? Right, generations after our, our walking body, or our 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 corporal bodies are, are here, and I'm much more interested in what is the type of work that's not uh hip uh, and in the headlines for uh, a year or a month or a week, what are things that are going to have real um, epistemic um, uh, impact uh, generations from now? And in a lot of ways, that's going to, that, that very much is tempering even the types of work that I find myself either revisiting or shifting focuses towards.
1: All right. Thank you. And now, I mean, I'm tempted to, if you if you indulge me, let me ask one more, one more question before sure. we say goodbye.
0: Sure.
1: Um, so, kind of as you're talking through the various projects, then kind of what those projects are themselves connected to, um, you know, with the Caribbean Philosophical Association and elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you talk about at a couple points in this book, um, yeah. you talk about Marinage is is coming from a particular historical milieu or context and having some sort of, I believe the phrase you use at one or two points is transhistoric utility. And so, I mean, what is it about, Use another phrase that you use in the book, about theorizing from modernity's underside that enables us to engage with and think through and work with and move with these kind of concepts that are historically specific but also have this much broader, um, working on much different timescales?
0: Yeah, so... um I and this is just not me, this is um the I, I think what is really healthy is for us to get a sense of um where words you know not only the meaning of words but the, the history of those words. When did words come into being I would say, if, you know, that, that, that there's a part of me that almost wishes in, in another life I would have been a philologist. You know, I'm mm-hmm. very very interested in words, um, but my interest in the words and when they come into being is because one view could be a word come in, comes into being to capture a concept or a phenomena that could only be applicable to the moment in which it came to being and afterward. You follow? That's one view. Uh, another view, which is one that I subscribe to, which is that maybe it's not the case for all concepts or words. But there are concepts and words that come into being at a particular moment for understandable um, historical reasons. But they're explaining phenomena, not only that explain them in the present and afterwards, but the that 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 come before. So if one thinks of, for instance, the word genocide or totalitarianism, or marinage. All of these are words that can be dated, right, to specific periods. But one can then look at these phenomena and say, you know what? Before the period of the 20th century, or before the period of the 1530s, this phenomenon of flight, or what we call genocide or totalitarianism, existed, right, in the world. And fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on the word or term, uh, May also resonate in the contemporary moment and into the into the future, and so when I mean, what I mean by transhistorical utility is that um, what i 'm suggesting is even though Marinage comes into language at a particular period, I really want to invite readers uh, uh, readers to to think about, well, what are the ways in which if we were to actually take this heuristic as something that could be applied across time, how can people not just in ancient Greek or ancient Roman slavery but also whether it's the Zanj in what is now considered Iraq or various other societies that even predate the other ones. How does that phenomenon of marinage and different modalities or any of them hold? And if it does, how can that help us to understand those periods better? And then also through our current um, moment and into the future, that's what I mean by the transhistorical utilities. I think that there are, uh, I really strongly believe this. I think that there are certain um, words and ideas that, um they that, that we finally give a vocabulary for, but they actually enable us to understand the past better. And to bring it back to Glissant, one of my favorite phrases of Edward Glissant uh that was initially asserted in the Discourse uh Antilles, or Caribbean Discourse, but actually was first um in the beginning of a play that Glissant had of all figures of Toussaint, where he he uses the phrase the prophetic vision of the past. And when you hear that prophetic vision of the past, you kind of wrestle, you scratch your head, and say, "What is he talking about?" But there is a way in which Glissant was making an argument that the the the, the 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 present that we all know and our role in it, the view of history that has been fed to us, or, or that we may have grown up with, may have been a very subjective view of history. And then, if we want to actually correct the historical record to then move forward we have to have he viewed a prophetic vision of the past. we actually have to rethink and art, articulate a different notion of of history and like a boomerang have that notion of going backward and then pushing bending time backward and then into the present into the into the future and i see that i that the term marinage, even though glissant didn't intend this i see it in some ways having that similar uh, prophesying quality of of being able to kind of bend backward in time to have us in some sense time warp back into different phenomena that perhaps could be explained through this heuristic, and then also push through to the present and into the future, keeping this framework of flight um, of flight with us. And and I, and I have already heard the, you know, the, the the following form of critique, which is Roberts, you're just I like this idea of marinage possibly, but you know you're trying to have it do too many things, and maybe I am, but I'm still holding my ground because I think that it's 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 not just about stubbornness I think it's actually this idea of of, of thinking about uh a rearticulation of a philosophy of history and then how does that um then reshape what we know or put differently it's 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 as if having a you know a language i'm you know I'm sitting here and I have a keyboard you're at your keyboard or you're looking at your and you don't know what any of these things are. They look like symbols. And then next thing you, you learn that, wait a minute, this is a language. And the symbols are letters and numbers, right, and commands. Then your entire, not just your present, but your past, when you didn't know that language, you might have thought something was scribbled on the wall when, in fact, that was a language. You follow? And that, that then ends up, um, uh, if we meditate on those, um, it potentially can mean that we need to reshape how we thought about the past uh, and how we think about other moments in time. And and so I really am very much, while informed by analytical and continental traditions, analytical ph- philosophical traditions that want to dehistoricize, uh, that's not this type of book. So readers should be forewarned that I'm very much attentive to not only those kind of analytical traditions that might want to take work outside of history, but I really am uh, embedding this in history that is not, the Cambridge School of Political Thought, which is a version or a genre of history, that is not historical studying political thought to core, right? That is a version of it. And this is simply just saying, Well, maybe we need to look at all another optic and conversation and, and see what you know, see what see what happens. Maybe it means taking a middle ground or, or going to another vista that has been uncharted and I would certainly welcome that if that's the upshot of um, people engaging with, with the content.
1: Thank you for that, that imperative and that challenge, and thank you for this book, and, and thank you for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you spending some time with us.
0: Yeah, and thank you, John. I really um, appreciated this, and, and thank you to all of those listening, and look forward to hearing any
1: form of feedback that uh, anyone has. All right, thank you.